If you would, please turn to the Bible to Revelation chapter 3. Today we will start the third chapter of the final book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 3. This will be the fifth church that is addressed here in Revelation. Chapter 2 had four. Chapter 3 has three more. There's seven total. First was Ephesus, and then Smyrna, then Pergamum. Last week we studied the letter to the church in Thyatira. Today we begin chapter 3 with the church in Sardis. Sardis. Yesterday the sun was out in the evening, and one of my little girls was asking if we could go for a walk, and we didn't because I was at home praying Duke would lose. So I said no to the walk. Actually, it was just too cold to go for a walk yesterday. It looked like a pretty day, but it was cold. But we like to take family walks. We do. I know you guys do too. I want to encourage all of you all, especially if you have some kids or grandkids, to take walks. We're getting right to the perfect time of year for you to go on walks. We're just a few weeks away from this new Circle K being finished, and you can go up there for 99 cents and get you a slushie and Makes for a great, great, great day, a great time with you and the kids. We love going on walks, and we've been doing that for years. I mean, we've been taking walks with our children since they were born, and we've got great memories of that. And every once in a while when you're going for a walk, and on the walk, on the road, or on the sidewalk, you will come across uh, some roadkill, won't you? Sometimes it's a possum that's been hit, and it's just laying there, and it's, you know, it's rather nasty, But sometimes it's a little bit more interesting, like a dead snake. And sometimes, you know, the snake will will look like it's not dead, right? And you'll walk up very very timidly like this, and I'll usually say, well, pick it up, Noah. And we'll be scared to pick it up because I can't actually tell if it's dead or not. And you've said that before, right? a frog or a lizard in your driveway or something like that 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 somehow got roasted in the heat. It's just sitting there, and it looks like it might still be alive. And then eventually somebody gets brave enough to just, and nothing happens, right? It's, It's dead. But it doesn't look dead. And you find yourself there kind of puzzled for a minute. Man, that thing really looks alive, but it's not. In all seriousness, folks, churches are that way too. And churches are made up of people. And this is a real heavy sermon for us this morning. It didn't come off of our agenda. It comes from the Word of God. There are Christians or people that are supposedly Christians that have all of this stuff going on in their lives to make them look like there is spiritual life there. But inside, they're dead. It's true for people, and it's true for churches. And in the first century, it was true for the church in Sardis. This is a needed sermon for us here today. May any pride or arrogance or false religion or self-righteousness or any attitude of holier than thou, or we're good, 
anything like that be dealt with here today by God and his mercy for us. May we know what it means to be alive in Christ. May the true life of God breathed in by the Spirit be a part of us individually and therefore us as a church. Read with me, if you will, at Revelation chapter 3. We will look at the first six verses. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is not a good thing to the church in Sardis. This is very unfortunate. This is a church that quite frankly needs to wake up. This is a word from the Lord Jesus Christ as we see there in verse one, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, which on each of these uh, letters to the churches is a quote back from chapter one. We know that that means it's coming from Christ. And as we have seen, there is, a, a, there is a common structure among all seven of these where Christ identifies himself. Then he says something to the churches that is commendable, a compliment, something good. And then he goes into the criticism of that which is wrong and out of place in their lives and in their church that they need to repent of. And upon repenting and turning back to God, they will find the victory in Christ and the, and the closeness to God that the church is supposed to have. You see that structure throughout them all. There are a few where there's just a couple tweaks. This here today, this fifth church, this beginning of chapter three to the one in Sardis is a little bit different from that structure because he doesn't say anything good about the church in Sardis. And this is unfortunate. The closest thing to that him be, that saying something good is that he says, I know your works. And I want to do today what we've done through each of these is just have two points the first is Jesus saying, I know your works. And the second we'll get to here in a little bit. That's what his response is, or him telling them what their response should be. So number one, Jesus says, I know your works. And as we've pointed out every time, because he does say that quite a bit, he is able to see and know all that the church does. Jesus knows what his church is doing. He's the head of the church, the Lord of the church, right? He's the bridegroom to the church. 
He knows what his people are doing. When the apostle Paul was leading the Jewish people in the book of Acts to persecute and kill Christians, and Jesus comes to Saul on the road to Damascus in the book of Acts, he says to him, why are you persecuting me? Christ is so closely related and connected to his church that to do something wrong to the church is to do something wrong to Christ. We see this. And here we see that even more clearly when he continues to say over and over again, I know what you're doing. I know your works. Church, we need to be reminded here today that God knows all that is going on with us. He knows what's happening in our lives. He knows that which we're holding on too tightly and keeping from him. He knows that which we think we're hiding from him. He knows it all. He knows the good that we're trying to do. He knows the bad that we're trying to do. He knows our works. He knows the works of the church in Sardis. And depending on where your mindset is, or your worldview, or your view of life, or your outlook, or your perspective, or if you're actually walking by faith, you think that's a good thing. Some of y'all, and I hear people say it, some of y'all are trying to pat yourself on the back by saying, God knows my works. Oh, God knows how much good I do. God knows I'm a good person. God knows my heart. I hear people say that. I cringe on the inside, but I tread lightly to show grace and mercy. Here today, when he says to the church in Sardis, I know your works, that's not a good thing. Look, every one of us are a, are a mixed bag here today. Every one of us do some good things, and every one of us do some bad things, okay? God does not deal with us based off of uh, the amount of good or the amount of bad that we've done. There is no scale in the judgment of God. There is no scale at the gate of heaven. There is no deciding in God's mind whether we've done enough good to outweigh the bad. That's not the way it works. And when we think about works on that level, we're not understanding God and his mercy and his love for us. Quite frankly, God doesn't care how much bad you've done or God doesn't care how much good you've done. God says that he is altogether good and that we are not as good as him. Everybody has sinned against God. Everybody has. Good people and good neighbors, if there are such a thing, sin against God. We all have. And to break God's standard at any point is to separate ourselves from God. It is to make us fallen and short of God's glory. And so when, when, when God says he knows our works, that means he knows it all. He knows the good and he knows the bad. And he's aware that the bad has separated us from him. With the church in Sardis, he says, I know your works. And here's what he says next. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. If you were talking about a snake that you encountered on the family walk, that's not that big of a deal. That's rather humorous. If you're talking about your church, that's about as bad as it can get. Do churches have reputations? This is, a, this is an uncomfortable conversation for us church people. It's an uncomfortable conversation for church leaders like myself. Do churches have reputations? Jesus says they do. 
The church in Sardis in the, front, in the first century, listen to me, had a good reputation to everybody around it except to Jesus. If you've been through middle school and high school, you know that reputations aren't all they're cracked up to be, right? If you've lived long enough to get past that self-centeredness, you know now that reputations aren't worth very much. Hopefully you've taught yourself, I don't really care what everybody thinks about me. I'm worried about who I am on the inside, a person of character and integrity. I'm concerned about who God thinks I am. Am I open and honest before him? Reputations are real though. People can think something about you based off a thousand different situations. Reputations happen sometimes because they saw you do one thing that you really did. They don't know about the thousand things that you did that are opposite of that. They just saw that one, and they gave you that reputation. And we may not like that, but that's kind of fair. Hey, you may be honest 99% of the time with your life, but one day over here, you lied straight up to somebody. So now they say and they tell people, you're a liar. And you'll argue all day long, no, I'm not. I'm not a liar. But you lied over there. So your reputation to that person is that you're a liar. You may have never lied, but somebody doesn't like you. And so they go around telling everybody that you lie because they don't like you. They're lying, but people believe them. You could get a reputation of being a liar that way. Reputations are what they are. Sometimes they're good and true. Sometimes they're really wrong. Sometimes they're kind of like halfway true. You ever heard the phrase where there's smoke, there's fire? Sometimes a reputation, eh, kind, of, kind, of, kind of maybe some truth there. But that's how reputations are, and we know that. Churches can have reputations, and they can have inaccurate reputations. I don't want to even ask here today what our reputation is. I want us to see the story of the church in Sardis. I want us to be challenged to wake up. In Sardis, they had the reputation, if you look back to Revelation 3.1, they had the reputation of being alive, but you were dead. Now, they're not alive, they're dead, okay? We know that, that's the words of Christ. It's a dead church, and that's sad in and of itself. But there are dying churches, and there are churches that are now dead. There are churches that have gone completely dead. I told you, the first church in Ephesus, he warned them that if they don't repent, he's gonna come and remove the lampstand from them, right? You remember that in, in Ephesus, and I told you that there is no longer a church in Ephesus. There's no longer a city of Ephesus, and, and so that's what happened, and that happens to churches, they all together die out, go dead, disobey God, turn from him, whatever. They close their doors, sell their property, and the, churches, the church ceases to exist. But the church at Sardis is dead. But what makes this really interesting for us here today is that the reputation around Sardis is that it was alive, which means 
For us as a church and for you as an individual, there are absolutely things we can do and ways we can live that act like, seem like we're living for God when we actually are not. You can be doing things to give yourself a false security that you're a good person, that you're a believer in God, that you're a Christian or whatever, and it not be real. That's the deal with the church in Sardis. It seemed like they were alive, but they were dead. Now, I don't know. It doesn't tell us. It doesn't tell us what they did to seem that they were alive. In our context, we could say some things like, well, they, they had a worship service. They gathered. There were people there. People showed up. They drew a crowd I mean, they sang songs, and they had a message, and they were praying, right? I mean, it seems like there's life there. Maybe they were really busy. Maybe their parking lot was always full. Maybe they were always trying to do events. Maybe they spent a lot of time together. I don't know what they did to make people have the reputation that they were alive, but they weren't. And that's scary, There's a lot of different people that get credit for this quote, but listen to this quote. My biggest fear in life is being good at things that don't matter. You've heard that before, haven't you? I don't know who actually gets the credit for it. There's been several people attributed to it. My biggest fear in life is being good at things that don't matter. What if the church is doing all kinds of things except the things that God tells us to do. God tells us that we are to follow Christ. We must know where he's going and what he says. God tells us that the only way we follow Christ is if we have believed in him for the forgiveness of sins which means we have to be open and honest that we sin. We must be able to say that we sin. We must be able to identify what our sins are. We must be able to admit that we are bad and on the wrong side of God and eternity in our sins and come to him and ask God in a true humility, oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Forgive me. Renew me, restore me, change my life, save me. Life from God looks like that. We must be forgiving people. We must be people who love and love well, love each other. We must remember what the Bible teaches about love, that it's easy to love lovable people and it's hard to love people that aren't very lovable. It's hard to love enemies and it's hard to love people that sin against you, but that's what real love is. Love is sacrificial and love extends. Love keeps no record of wrongdoing. Love bears with one another. It must be loving. You must remember the challenge that came to the church at Ephesus that they had forsaken their first love. And how bad that was. We must remember that love of God is the highest motivation for our lives. It's the number one and defining characteristic. We love God should be what drives us. 
Living churches know what the Bible says, and they aim to follow it. Living churches know that there is a a, a false sense of security when we buy into worldly ways of trying to create energy or momentum or things that work to draw a crowd or get people together or create emotions. It's not necessarily the life of God. The life of God is people who repent of their sins and don't think they're better than other people. The life of God are people who realize that our only hope is Christ. The life of God knows that anybody that makes it to heaven knows that they got there by grace and mercy through the forgiveness of sins. When he says he knows their works, he could be talking about their good works, but he's certainly aware of their bad works as well. And the Bible teaches us that we are never ever saved by good works, that we cannot earn our salvation. You cannot earn your way to heaven. You cannot work your way to heaven. We are saved by grace through faith. We read that passage earlier in Ephesians 2 that says that. And in that passage where you're not saved by works, you're saved by grace through faith, it says there two times, you were dead. He uses this word, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And dead does not mean bad. Dead means dead. If you're bad, you can sometimes do good. And if you're good, you can sometimes do bad. bad. But if you're dead, you can never do life. Had a lot of death around our church here lately. A lot of death around Fairdale here lately. Couple funerals this week, another funeral today, another funeral tomorrow. There's a lot. And nobody in here will argue for a second that it's not final. It's final. I don't know what's going on at the funeral home today, but I promise you this those people are dead. And that's the word God uses about people. They're dead. And we need life. And life comes not from within. You can't make yourself alive. Life comes through the power of God working in us. 2 Corinthians 3 says, the Spirit gives life. 2 Corinthians 3 says that the law kills. And the law is where you get all works. Well, I do this in obedience, and I do this in good works, and I do this in trying my best. The law kills. It weighs you down. And as soon as you get ready to be proud of a good work, you actually should be able to recognize how often you don't do good works. The point there is that the law kills and that the Spirit gives life. Life in God comes from God. He gives it. That's why we preach Christ crucified. Because when Jesus died on the cross, he was dead, dead, dead. They were supposed to break his legs, and they didn't even break his legs because he was so dead on the cross. And he was so dead on the cross that they didn't break his legs, that they took a sword and stabbed his side. And he was so dead that when they did that, the stuff spilled out to show that he was dead, dead. He was dead. So much so, they took him down off the cross and they put him in a grave, in a tomb, where the only people that you put in tombs are dead people. And they put a stone there to say, don't let anybody in. 
And as the children's book says, the children's Bible, the Jesus storybook Bible says, not only were they thinking don't let anybody in, but they were thinking don't let anybody out. Isn't that awesome? All you parents that have read it, that is awesome. Put that stone there so that nobody gets in or out. Whew, that's good. But as you know, it's not works that get you out. It's not works that make you alive. God rolled the stone away. And Jesus came out alive. And the Spirit of God raised him up to newness of life. Death could not hold him. Sin could not hold him. He lives. And as Revelation 1 said, Jesus said himself, Behold, I am alive forevermore. He lives. And it is the life of Christ working under the miraculous God-only power through the Holy Spirit that gives life to human beings, spiritual life. God gives life. And the church in Sardis was filled of people with lots of activity that had a reputation of being alive, but they were dead. And this is so concerning. We need to be focused. We need to have our priorities in order so that you and I are aware we're not just going through the motions. We're not busybody Christians. We're not here today to say that we came today. Being here today did not just put another check so that when we die, they'll be able to say he was a good church-going man. Bull, baloney, that is not true. You can be dead like Sardis and here today. You can show up to this place and speak well of us people and think, that was a good sermon. I never heard that before. Man, you really got me thinking. I'm really liking this Revelation series. We hear that stuff all the time. And you can be dead as can be there. If you're not turning to God, repenting of your sins, asking him to forgive you, believing in Jesus as the answer to it all, the king and Lord of all creation that loves you and gave himself for you, that now has shaped your posture, your life, your present, who you are, Jesus. We may not be alive. And the church of Sardis has a reputation, but they are dead. Commentator Wilcox says this, let us make no mistake about Sardis. She is not what the world would call a dead church. Perhaps even by her sister churches, she is considered live. Indeed, since Christ tells her to wake up and warns her that his coming to judge her will be quite unexpected, it seems that she herself is not aware of her real spiritual state. All regard her as a flourishing, active, successful church all except Christ. If you're here today and you are still trying to convince yourself how good of a person you are and that be your spiritual life, may you be set free by trusting in Christ. May you remove the burden of trying to convince yourself how good you are And may you be set free by saying, God, forgive me of my sins. I recognize Christ died and lives because he loves me. May you believe that you're not saved by works, but you are saved by grace. A father in heaven that loves you because of Christ. May you be set free. Believe that. He certainly knows your works, the good ones and the bad ones. 
But are you alive? Are you alive to God? Is your spiritual life there? Do you hope in Christ? Do you know deep down that he's yours, that he's your father in heaven, that Christ lives, that your sins are forgiven? Do you know deep down that he is working inside of you? Or are you still trying to earn it? Are you still trying to prove yourself? Believe that God loves you and sent Jesus to die for you and that he now lives forever as your Savior. It's a scary thing for us to hear that the church in Sardis has a reputation of being alive, but it is dead. May we be warned here today to not be dead in our own souls, not be dead in our church. But there's a lot more said in chapter 3, and so secondly now we go into Jesus says, I know your works, but then Jesus gives them something that they can do. And this is, this is really interesting because if you're dead, you're dead dead. I've already said that so many times. But now Jesus seems to say that there's something that they can do to get them uh, out from being dead. And this is where we've got to recognize it as the, as the whole church, as a collective body. Okay, Look at verse 2. He says to them, wake up. And strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I've not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. Our second point this morning is Jesus saying, wake up, remember, and repent. Those three words. For the kids using the listening page, it's Jesus saying, wake up, remember, and repent. I didn't want my second point to get too long, so that's what it is. But actually here in this passage, he says five verbs, five things that they are to do. It's wake up and strengthen, remember, keep it, and repent, or obey there for keep it. He has a response for his church, and he tells them that they need to turn back to him. They need to get focused. They need to look to Christ They are to strengthen what remains and is about to die. So they're dead, but they're about to die. And God says there that I've not found your works complete in the sight of my God. But then look what he tells them in verse 3. And this is so important for a church. And this is why we cannot allow ourselves to become entertainment-driven. As much as we want you all to like church, as much as we want you all to think, man, those sermons are good. Man, I like the songs that we sang. Man, got a good vibe there. As much as we want you all to like church, that is not the goal. It's not, the, it's not what drives us. Faithfulness to God according to his word and how he teaches us to, to, to lead and structure church is the priority. And believers are to know that. We come up here and we say, man, I hope we sing today, and I hope we give today, and I hope we pray today, and I hope we hear from the Word today. And then when we do that, you're like, man, I like my church. It's being faithful to God. But look what he says in verse 3. He says, remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. In other words, he reminds Sardis back to when their church began. He reminds them to when the gospel got to them, when the first time somebody showed up preaching Jesus dead and alive, preaching the cross of Christ, preaching the resurrection. He reminds them of when they heard that and when it moved them and when it did something to them, when it got their attention and opened their eyes and opened their ears, when it shook their soul, when it brought conviction to them and they thought, man, I I think they're talking to me. 
I feel like God's drawing me to himself, man. I feel God working in me that I need to turn to him. I need to, I need to become a Christian. I need to make some changes in my life. I need to get right with God. I need to be forgiven of God. I feel it. I feel it. I want it. He tells them to remember that and come back to that. And see, here's the thing, folks. Christianity never graduates out of that. What we were 10 years ago is what we should be today in that we are preaching the gospel of Jesus according to his word and people are responding with faith and repentance. And by the mercy of God, 10 years from now, may the same thing be happening. If we sing some different songs or wear some different clothes or something like that, okay, But as far as the substance of what we are, it must be that we are committed to the risen Jesus and that people have sinned against him. That's what killed him. He died for our sins. He didn't deserve to die. He didn't sin. And in believing that, we turn from our sins and we turn to Christ. That's it. That's the strategy of Christ, of church. We preach Christ crucified. And we trust through the prayers and the Holy Spirit that God works through that. He reminds the church of Sardis to remember that. Remember who you were. Remember where you came from. Remember what you heard. Keep it. Respond to it. Get back to it. Strengthen yourself on this. Wake up that you've gotten away from it. Be aware and honest that you're sleeping spiritually and repent. Turn back to God. There have been several Sundays now where I've tried to demonstrate this, but repenting is turning around. It's turning. It's, it's a 180-degree turn from your sins or whatever direction you're going to God. If your life's going this way, and it may be all good, but it doesn't have Christ in the center of it, you must turn to God. That's what repent means. Some people act like repent is some big, heavy, ugly church word, and they hope that people don't use it. Repentance may be the best word that you could put in your entire life. Repenting means I'm turning away from this and I'm turning to Jesus. That's what repenting is. And it's so good. The church of Sardis has a reputation that is inaccurate. They need to get back to following Jesus. They need to get back to loving Jesus. They need to get back to believing that their very being comes from the life of Christ. So they need to turn back to that. We need to admit that we always need to do that. I do and you do. We need to be living repentant all the time. Sometimes we really mess up in big ways and we just outright disobey God. Sometimes we get rather lazy and just act like it ain't that important to us anymore. Sometimes we get straight up sleepy where it hasn't even been on our mind at all. We forgot what we were even supposed to be. And the answer to all of it, sinning, laziness, or being asleep, is to repent. God, forgive me of my sins. God, forgive me for being this way, thinking this way, acting this way. Forgive me for not caring. Forgive me for not trying. Forgive me for resting in anything else other than your love for me through Christ. And the church of Sardis is told to repent. He says to them then at the end of verse 3, If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. He gives a warning there that he will come and bring some judgment upon them. We said last week that God's a judge, and that's a good thing, and he will judge. 
Verse 4, though, we get a little bit of hope. Look what he says. And remember, the church is a body made up of lots of people. In verse 4, he says, Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Wow. We don't know their names, but can you imagine? Can you imagine being at church that day? Because there was, this is a real church, y'all. Church in Sardis, first century. Can you imagine being in church that day when this letter was read? And I don't know how many people they had. Let's just say there were 50 people there that day. And the letter comes, and whoever's reading it says, all right, guys, y'all listen up, please. We've got a letter from the Apostle John that Jesus sent to him. And there's a letter to the church in Sardis. I know your reputation. At that moment, they probably looked around like, yeah, he does, man. We're, we're doing a lot here, man. This church has a lot going on. Man. We're busy. We're active. We're working hard for God. I know your reputation that you're alive, but you're dead. At that moment, everybody would have been like, oh, man. And then a little bit later in the letter, you get over to verse four and he says, there are a few names, people who have not soiled their garments, mean become worldly, given into living for sin, and they walk with me in white and they are worthy. Can you imagine being those people? Can you imagine being those people who have to acknowledge and identify and just be fully aware that your church is called dead? I think this is why he tells them to wake up, remember, strengthen, obey, and repent. Because the believers, those few, have to lead the way in causing the rest of the church to know that they're dead. And that's obviously very hard. That's a big task. That's a challenge that maybe you didn't think you signed up for. Your church is supposed to be a strengthening to your faith, not a war ground, not a battlefield. But sometimes you find yourself in church with dead people. And you think, man, we just ain't on the same focus. There's some people in church that think it's all about Jesus. And they're right. And there's some people in church they never talk about Jesus, and they're wrong. In the church of Sardis, there were a few. And you know, in the Bible, we talk all the time about worthy, right? One of my favorite things is Revelation 5, where it says, worthy is the lamb who was slain. We love that, don't we? Christ is worthy. And we talk about all the time how we're not worthy. And that's generally what the Bible teaches. God's worthy, we're not worthy, Right? It's generally what the Bible teaches. But here, Jesus says that those few people in Sardis are worthy. Does everybody see that? Look at the end of verse 4. Who have not soiled their garments, and they walk with me in white, for they are worthy. In the midst of a dead church, where everybody around them was more proud of their worldly reputation than they are their faith in Christ, because they didn't really have it, 
They held on to Christ in the midst of a dead church. Those few people are called by Christ worthy who walk the walk and talk the talk and lived in faithful repentance, trusting in Christ for their salvation, for their identity. And he says they are worthy. What a thought, what a thought. In verse five, he says, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. And then he makes the most controversial statement. And I will never blot his name out of the book of life. Well, it's about noon. This statement here, y'all, is a big one. The Bible tells us that there is a book of life, often called the Lamb's Book of Life, and I, I, I think we have every reason to think this is the same thing. A book in heaven with God that has all the names of everybody that will be saved. This book is mentioned multiple times in the Bible. Later on in chapter 13, you have the Lamb's Book of Life. Later on in chapter 17, you have the Lamb's Book of Life. In both of those passages, it does say that the names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world, 13.8 and 17.8. Here, the Book of Life is mentioned of all that are going to be saved And he says to those who are trusting in Christ, here, the one who conquers, the one clothed in white garments, that he will never blot his name out of the book of life. Now, just for, let's say in everything we can say right now, for clarity, he doesn't actually say that he blots any names out of the book of life. That's quickly where our mind goes. Does that mean that he does? He doesn't actually say that here. He just says he's not going to or that he's never going to. Some people will say, yeah, but if he says that, that means he must do some. I don't know. Here's what I want you to know. If you're trusting in Christ, your name will always be in the Lamb's Book of Life. If you're trusting in Christ for your salvation, your name will never come out of the Book of Life. Jesus himself says to the one who conquers, to the one who's in white, your name will never come out of the book of life. If Jesus says never, it means never. If you're here today, trust in Christ. Stop trying to decide whether you're spiritual enough, good enough, Stop trying to figure out whether you think you're better than you're bad. I know I've done some really bad things, but those were a long time ago, and I think I've really been better since then. Stop thinking like that. Hear the word of God that Christ loves you and died for you. And believe that if you will repent of your sins and trust that, he will forgive you of all your sins. And when you believe it, never stop believing it. Think about these words. Wake up, remember, and repent. In the mornings, I go to wake my kids up for school And y'all do that sometimes too. And you got some where all you got to do is it's time to get up and they jump right out of bed, right? They're in the shower in like two seconds. You're like, man, that was easy. And you got some that are the opposite. It takes an hour, right? You got to do all but jump on them and pour water on them to get them up. 
And then you got some that wake up in a good mood, which is rare, but they wake up in a good mood and they're gonna try to fake you, aren't they? All right, time to get up. They just keep laying there like they're asleep. And I remember one time Liliana was pulling that trick on me. And Carolina kept saying, I think she's already awake. I think we were talking just a few minutes ago. And she's still faking like she's asleep. So finally I said, oh my goodness, this is, this is awful, y'all. Lily's dead. I thought she was just asleep, but we can't wake her up. She must be dead. All right, I'm going to go call. And when I said that, bam, she jumped right up. She wasn't really dead. If the Bible tells us that spiritually speaking, we can be dead, it ought to bother us. And if Christ's mercy says he can create life in us, you ought to want it. You ought to say, God, give me life on the inside. The whole world, eight billion people, is eight billion people trying their best to be good. And God says you're not as good as him. But the Bible says that he gives life to those who come to him. And may you say, God, make me alive. Breathe in me. Breathe on me. Wake me up. Raise the dead. Give me life. And today, by repenting and turning to Christ, you can be alive. Wilcox says, these are life-giving power. This is the life-giving power of God. And in Sardis, as in all the seven cities, Christ has in his hands both the needy church and the life-giving spirit. He can bring the two together, not only to diagnose, but also to revive the dead. And we may be sure that if Sardis remembers and heeds and repents, he will do so to them. And the same is true for you here today. If you limped in here, crawled in here, if you came in here today just for the kids, or you came here today just because you wanted to spin karma in your favor that the Tar Heels would win tonight, or something like that, may you have heard, may you have heard today that God gives life to dead people and trust in Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that the resurrection of Jesus is the truth that determines everything. May we believe it. Oh God, may we hear that there's such thing as a dead church and may we labor to not be one. But Father, may we know that it's not our labor that speaks to us being dead or alive. It is why we labor. It's the power of God in us. Oh, Father, may we remember the gospel. May we repent of our sins. May we trust in Christ. Oh, Father, lead us now. Give life to your church. Life in Christ. In his name we pray, amen.